Hey guys, Anna Victoria here, and I'm so excited for you to join me on my podcast, Your Best Life. I'm the CEO and founder of the FitBody app, a fitness influencer, and a personal trainer. Every week, I'm going to have a special guest that will share their unique experience and unique story to share how they learned how to live their best life, even if they're still working on it, since we are all a work in progress. I can't wait to help you learn how to create your best life. Welcome back to another episode of Your Best Life Podcast. Anna Victoria here in Luca. Hello, everyone. Today's guest is Phoebe Lapine, who is a food and health writer, gluten-free chef, wellness personality, culinary instructor, award-winning blogger, recipe developer, Hashimoto's advocate, and host of the SIBO Made Simple podcast. So, Luca, I'm really um, interested to talk to Phoebe because I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism through our TTC journey, which was like a huge shock to me. Um, And I'll explain the reasons why once I get talking to Phoebe. But um, is there anything in particular you're looking forward to hearing about? What about Hashimoto? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you know, I'm not really familiar with the disease, but I've heard a lot of people actually have this autoimmune disease and, you know, but I'm not really familiar with it. So I would like to learn more about it. It's definitely something even, I mean, I don't even know that much about it. I know some because of my hypothyroidism diagnosis and we have some friends um, that have it, but yeah, it definitely seems like it's something that's on the rise. And it's also something that seems like it takes a long time to get diagnosed with, probably because it's, it's somewhat, I don't want to say it's probably not new, but it's just gaining more, you know, yeah. popularity. So, And I wonder if there's, you know, something to do with the food and how the food actually impacts right. thyroid levels. Well, do you mean like food in terms of how it's made? Yeah, how it's sourced and how it's made, yeah. Because you come from a culture that treats, not literally treats food, but literally like what, what they treat food with, like what they put into it as they're farming. Right, much exactly. Different. Yeah, much different, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, guys, here's my conversation with Phoebe Lapine. Hi, Phoebe. How are you? I'm good. So nice to meet you. <laughs> you virtually. too. Yes. Thanks so much for coming on to Your Best Life. I'm so excited to chat. Do you want to start by um, sharing a bit about who you are and what you're about? Sure. Um, so I'm Phoebe Lapine, and I'm kind of a, a health and wellness jack of all trades. Um, I started my website, Feed Me Phoebe, about seven years ago, and basically I've just chronicled my experience with autoimmune disease, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and various changes I've had to make to my lifestyle, including a lot of dietary modifications. Before that, I was a private chef and caterer and food writer with zero dietary restrictions. (laughs) So um, my site's really uh, taken myself and my readers on a bit of a winding road um, to where I am today. And now I focus on gut health issues, one in particular called SIBO, which is small intestine bacterial overgrowth. I have a podcast called SIBO Made Simple. And my most recent book, The Wellness Project, was all about um, kind of the change by change I made to get my Hashimoto's under control and focusing on everything from obviously diet to sleep to hydration and everything in between. Amazing. That is a lot, a lot about food, (laughs) which is great. I love it. And one quick question I have, did you get diagnosed with Hashimoto's prior to your food blog or like during? 
So kind of during, I had a, a site before this one and once I got the diagnosis and really started taking that seriously and that kind of drove my, my point of view around food in a different direction, um, that's when I pivoted. But I have a cookbook that came out in 2011 that has nothing to do with health. Oh, <laughs> and, my um, That's called In the Small Kitchen. And then, yeah, my pivot kind of happened after that. I like to tell people that, ironically, my, my food story and my Hashimoto story started around the same time. It just took, like, many years for them to dovetail and for me to kind of wake up to what I had to do and face the fear of, you know, being a young food writer, just trying to get work and then having dietary restrictions on top of it, which, you know, eight, ten years ago was not um, – as embraced as it is today. Right, yeah. And can, for those that don't know much about Hashimoto's, can you explain a bit about what it is exactly? Sure. So it's an autoimmune disease that affects the thyroid gland, which is this butterfly-shaped gland um, kind of around where a man's Adam's apple would be. Um, and your thyroid kind of has so many functions in the body. It controls temperature, energy. And so a lot of people with Hashimoto's, um, which is where the body accidentally attacks your own thyroid tissue because it sees it as a foe. Um, some of the downwind effects of that is, you know, being extremely tired, a lot of brain fog. Um, some people do end up having like temperature regulation issues, a lot of numbness in the hands and feet, and then, you know, just so many other, you know, more insidious symptoms like anxiety, depression, um, you know, a good uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, you know, if they know anything about thyroid issues, if they have someone in their office who has extreme depression, you know, one of the easiest things they can do to just troubleshoot is to check their thyroid levels because it is such an epidemic among women. Um, it affects 75% women, which is similar to a lot of autoimmune diseases. But since this one, you know, really has a lot to do with the whole hormonal motherboard, um, right. it can be, you know, really, really problematic for women. Yeah. So I actually was diagnosed diagnosed with hypothyroidism oh. recently. Yeah. And I, so, um, it started because my husband and I were trying to conceive and we had mm. been trying for a year with, with no luck. And I went to a fertility, my reproductive endocrinologist and they ran all my labs and I had, my TSH was elevated. Mm. And so they immediately put me on Synthroid or Levothyroxine. And I remember when they told me like, Oh, you have hypothyroidism. I was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I, I don't want to say I am, I'm a bit of a skeptic. Like I'm not like, <laughs> I will always listen to my doctors, but I will also like always research and like, I want to yeah. advocate for myself. And when they told me that, I'm just like, I've literally never had one symptom that you're explaining mm. about, about hypothyroidism still is a bit of a question mark in my mind, but at that point in time, it was like, we're trying to have a baby. Give me whatever you want me to take, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so I did start taking levothyroxine. Um, I'm still taking it because I am now pregnant. <laughs> so oh, we, thank you. So we did end up um, doing IVF. We took about another year in our um, infertility journey, did IVF, and it was successful. And I know how important your thyroid levels are, like not only in life, but in pregnancy, especially. Yes. So like, I'm still taking it, but it's something that like, as soon as I, I feel, I feel almost bad saying this because 
I want to say as soon as I'm in the clear, as soon as I'm like not pregnant and I don't know if it can impact breastfeeding or anything, but I want, I want to dive into what's really going on. Like, is there an alternative to me being, being on Synthroid for the rest of my life? When, especially when I don't feel like I have any symptoms. And the reason why I hesitated in saying this is because I've talked about, you know, being diagnosed before on my YouTube videos and some women that have like Hashimoto's where it is very serious they're like Mm. they kind of got really upset with me they're like you need to be taking that medicine but that's where like it's I I don't have any symptoms like they're experiencing very severe symptoms that they need their medication for yeah that's not my case so anyways uh before I continue on um I really am interested to hear what you what your experience and because you have um a bit of a holistic approach to it right is that correct yeah and I'll say you know I actually have been meaning to to write for a long time, like, you know, the things I wish I'd known when I was diagnosed. And I was diagnosed at 22, so I was a child. I had no idea how to process that information. I didn't know what an autoimmune disease was. I didn't know what a thyroid was. Yeah. Um, and I was told by my doctor to go on Synthroid and that it was no big deal, but I need to be on it for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And that was really scary because I don't want to be dependent on medication. Right. And I think, you know, it was funny because... I was on the right track in that I, you know, knew I didn't want to be dependent on a medication. I just immediately didn't really look at the holistic side of things and see what else I could do. So eventually I did end up going on some medication. I'm on Nature Throid, which is um, like, it's actually pig thyroid. So it's quote unquote (laughs) natural. But one of the reasons why it's kind of preferred by some endocrinologists is because it gives you both form of the thyroid hormone T4 and T3. Mm -hmm. And Synthroid only gives you the T4, which then your body needs to convert into T3. So for you, that's probably fine. But for someone with Hashimoto's and a lot of inflammation and a lot of nutrient deficiencies, you know, sometimes it's just almost like, taking nothing. I mean, you're just flushing your, your medication down the toilet because your body can't fully convert it. So that's why I'm kind of a fan of some of these other options. And it's a shame that a lot of endocrinologists don't, you know, reach into the full toolkit, probably because Synthroid is the most, you know, widely used. It's the most validated, but it's certainly not always the best option for everyone. Um, I don't think that medication is, you know, a failure or something to be ashamed of. I do think you always have to look at the holistic picture and do something in addition to the medication. But for me, I'm still on some low doses of that stuff. And I wouldn't, I would tell people who are, you know, are kind of holistically naturally inclined not to worry about that and to just take the medication because it can really help you. Right. No, absolutely. (laughs) And I totally agree. I'm not someone. I'm not a person of extremes. Like I'm not someone that's like, give me all the prescriptions blindly or like, I don't want anything. Like I think a middle ground is, is, you know, personally the right approach for me anyways. Um, what I was going to say is that, uh, I remember when I was prescribed Synthroid, I talked to my mom about it and she was like, Oh yeah, grandma's been on that for 60 years. And I was just like, yeah, 60 years. Like, Oh my gosh. Like I can't imagine. Yeah. It's crazy. And I can't remember if it was my mom, my mom or my doctor. My mom is like, so she's very similar to me, kind of middle ground. She likes holistic, but also respects medicine. Mm-hmm. And, um, but someone told me like, it is the most prescribed medication ever. in America. Yeah. yeah like that <laughs> blew my mind. Um, so, and, and I haven't talked about this before for, for my listeners that are listening. Um, I grew up with a dad who was very, um, 
ill, uh, not in a like severe way. I mean, he had hypoglycemia and some other things, um, but he did get put on prescription medication and I grew up kind of just seeing the counter full of prescription mm. medication. And what I noticed was always happening was he had medication for this. And after being on that for a while, he needed a medication for the side yeah. effects that that was causing. And then it was just a ripple effect. In my entire life, I've, I've seen him on medication. He, to this day, will never not be able to be completely you know, not medicated. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of something that when I heard about like, oh, you'll just need to be on Synthroid, you know, forever. It was like, uh, I don't want to go down that same path that my dad did. Yeah. So with that being said, um, let's start. If you can explain a bit about like what the traditional symptoms are. Of course, I think it manifests di slightly differently for different people. Um, so if someone thinks that they might have Hashimoto's, what would those symptoms look like? I mean, I think the fatigue is probably the most pronounced and, you know, obviously it's something you're going to feel every day. It's also, you know, something you can ch easily chalk up to other issues, you know, stress, working right. too hard. Um, and then for Hashimoto's people, weight gain is a big one because, yeah. again, it's your energy, it's your metabolism, that's all thyroid. Um, so that's a really tricky one for women and a really frustrating one. Um, I will say because it was my case that you can also be an anomaly or it's not an anomaly. It's just a smaller percentage of people who loses weight. Um, a lot of the time, you know, there are underlying gut issues, especially when it comes to autoimmune disease. And that may cause you to not be like absorbing nutrients pop properly. And, you know, you also may just be having such and so much inflammation in the body that that's also hampering your ability to absorb nutrients. So I will say it can go either way. Um, but generally speaking, hypothyroid, which is, you know, usually the Hashimoto side of things when your thyroid is not working properly, um, is weight gain and hyperthyroid, which is more associated with Graves disease, which is when your your thyroid is overactive. That's when you lose weight. But I'd say like kind of in the process, depending on where you are, of your thyroid breaking down, um, you can oscillate too far from one direction or the other because again it's it's your body just trying to compensate in some ways um for improper function right and and you also mentioned SIBO so what mm -hmm. where does that come into the mix so I you know really had rehabbed my symptoms by doing this wellness project which you know was a, a full year endeavor um which I then wrote about in my book and I was feeling great and then it was so funny I was on my book tour and you know trying to to live my best life out in the public and be the face of this book and all these symptoms started creeping their way back into my life and it was funny because I was doing everything I thought was right I was you know eating all these fermented foods and drinking kombucha and you know really living with my quote-unquote gut health in mind and I was bloated my like GI symptoms were just out of control and I was I was just like what gives um I was burping a lot like during and after meals which was you know not normal and so eventually I went back to my functional medicine doctor and got a full workup and he ended up testing me for SIBO and it's something that I kind of heard about through the grapevine but certainly didn't understand I had heard a lot about the low FODMAP diet and you know mm -hmm. that kind of an association because you know I'm in the food space and I was getting a lot of my readers asking for those types of recipes um, but I certainly didn't know how it fit in and it's a shame because I didn't realize that Hashimoto's was a huge underlying condition that can contribute to SIBO. So essentially what SIBO is, is 
when perfectly healthy, normal gut bacteria start to proliferate too far up the GI tract. Because we're hearing so much about gut health these days. It's a buzzword. You know, I'm so happy that it's in the more mainstream, you know, health zeitgeist. But, you know, I didn't even really realize when I was researching for my book that we're really just talking about the large intestine when we talk about quote unquote gut health. Because um, in theory, you know, the gut includes the liver, it includes like all your kind of digestive organs. Um, but when you're talking about like quote unquote good gut bacteria, that's all in the large intestine and colon. And the small intestine where you're absorbing all your nutrients mm -hmm. is not where there's really, you know, a function for bacteria. And in fact, when they are too far up in the intestinal tract, they're competing for your food. And when they're eating your food, they're producing gas. And since it's, you know, not close to either exit, that gas can get trapped and become really uncomfortable. So, you know, it's very different than, you know, eating a can of beans and like being a little farty. Like this is like gas. It's like eating a can of beans and having your stomach immediately like inflate like an inner tube and like kind of high up like under your ribs. Yeah. And it can be so uncomfortable. And again, that's also correlated to a lot of um, different weight associated symptoms because certain types of bacteria that are trapped there can also preclude you to really holding on to weight. And then, you know, other types can, of course, you know, compete for your nutrients and cause you to be like chronically underweight. Um, so it was really fascinating thing that I dealt with myself. And then there were so few resources on it that like the Hashimoto's, I just ended up diving in and doing a ton of research on my own and starting my podcast. And now there's actually going to be a book, SIBO Made Simple, that's out in January, Amazing. which is exciting. Congrats. Yeah. So it's, it's a really fascinating condition because it's not really a disease in and of itself. It's really just a symptom of something else going wrong. Mm -hmm. And that could be, you know, someone having an abdominal surgery, a C-section even, wow. or laparoscopic surgery for endometriosis or a hernia or any number. There are, I think, over a hundred underlying conditions for SIBO that can contribute to this kind of structural issue of bacteria not being, you know, pushed down through the digestive tract properly. And do you think that this is something that doctors, like just like your family care practitioner, are equipped with enough to be able to identify or would you have to go to a specialist? You know, it's really unfortunate. It's it's starting to become a little bit more mainstream, but mm -hmm. still, you know, even my gastroenterologist was like, you probably know more about SIBO than I do. <gasps> wow. Yeah. So oh. it's not necessarily the GI that's going to diagnose it for you. It's probably more of like a holistic or functional medicine doctor. Um, but that said, you know, it's like, it's also because the research is so early, like we're still starting yeah. to learn more about the why behind it. And, you know, even though there are medications that are completely validated, it's still, you know, not necessarily something that many physicians understand like the full scope of and mm -hmm. certainly not like the diet portion, the lifestyle portion. Got it. Yeah. So for when I kind of started my, I, I don't know whether to call it a fitness journey, a wellness journey. Um, I came from eating exclusively fast food, junk food, prepackaged microwave meals, my whole life, I loved it. It was delicious, <laughs> you know. But as I got into my early 20s, I believe I was 20, uh, 21, 22, 
Um, I had a moment where I was going to, it was my first day of my senior year of college. And I remember getting out of the car to go to class and I keeled over. I couldn't stand. I had such a sharp pain in my stomach. Um, I, cu- I couldn't even stand. I had to call my sister and be like, hey, come get me. Like I need to go to like urgent care, emergency room, something. And when I went, they pretty much just said, here's your medicine to yeah. help your digestion and your GI. It's all messed up, but here's medicine. Okay. No other questions about like my diet, my lifestyle, anything like that. And I also like kind of similarly to you, I just took medicine. I didn't really like look much more into it. I didn't change anything about what I was doing. At that point in time, I was dating, who's now my husband, Luca, who is born and raised Rome, Italy. Their approach to eating is very different. And when we were dating early on, he would look at me eating like goldfish crackers for dinner or whatever and just be like, I don't think that's a meal. And I was like, yes, it is. Like, leave me alone. So, but pretty much it took like months of him being like, I think your, your issues might be the food that you're eating. And I did not want to accept it. I was literally like, I was... I don't know if I can say a child, but I was, I was just like, I love, you know, junk food. And I'm, I, this is the problem. This is kind of going a different tangent, but due to my genetics, it wasn't showing, you know, mm, I yeah. was what they would call quote unquote skinny fat. Um, yeah. Finny. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, so I looked fine from the outside, but on the inside, my health was a mess. My digestive system, my GI system, my health could have been worse than someone who, physically looked more overweight and that's yeah. that's a whole nother problem in double double standard in society but um you know when we actually moved to China after I graduated high school and we lived there for a year and that's when he my, my husband was like okay now you need to start taking care of yourself you no longer have the excuse of I work full-time go to school full-time yeah. blah 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 And I was like, fine, I'll give it a shot this is gonna be a waste of my time but what I found was that it literally, all was the food I was eating. It was all yeah. the junk food, processed food. As soon as I started eating whole natural foods, um, I, I I felt like a different person. And um, I didn't know that like not having bloating was like a possibility, you know, yeah. or like, or just like, you know, anytime, even today, if I go back to if I have like my treat meal, you know, type thing, I instantly will start having like, um, you know, acid reflux and digestive issues. So it comes back pretty quickly. Um, but aside from that, what I want to know your thoughts on are the food industry in the United States and how that has impacted. I don't want to say the diagnosis, the rise of diagnoses of autoimmune disorders, but just like in general, um, issues with our, with digestion and GI systems, because like, for example, I can go to Italy, you know, I lived there with him for a few years and I can eat the same type of food, but I don't have any of those issues. So is that something that you've experienced? Um, and what are your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I am pretty strictly gluten-free now because, Mm -hmm. you know, I just understand the autoimmune component of Hashimoto's Mm -hmm. and gluten, which is that the thyroid protein looks very similar to um, the gluten protein. So if you're kind of 
already in the throes of a body that can't really tell the difference (laughs) between friend and foe. Like that particular link is going to be an issue. Um, But, and also Italy is like on the forefront of gluten-free eating. Like they have so many amazing options for celiac and are so well educated in restaurants there that I'm just like, why I'm not even tempted to, to stray because you know, the pastas they have there just really taste almost as good as the real thing. Although I don't know, maybe your your (laughs) husband would disagree. Yeah, he might, but that's okay. (laughs) The me of 10 years ago, I probably disagree too. Um, Yeah. So with gluten in particular, a lot of people think that the issue is that it's GMO and wheat is actually not a GMO crop. It's rather it's hybridized. So kind of crossbred to be, to have a higher degree of gluten, but more importantly, to be able to withstand a higher degree of pesticides. And I really believe that it's the the pesticides, the Roundup, the glyphosate, that's the biggest issue across the board in a lot of crops that are quote unquote, like high allergen crops for people or or giving people like some sensitivities. Um, So the fact that we're now able to spray grain with like so many more chemicals that are specifically designed in the case of glyphosate to eat away at the guts of the insects mm. that they're trying to kill. So, you know, just think about what that does to the guts of the people who end up eating it as well. I mean, there's no way that that chemical is is going to be able to differentiate between species. Like it's going to get you right in your digestive tract no matter what. Um, so I think that's kind of an underappreciated one. Um, for gluten, there's also the issue of kind of the way commercial bread is made. So, mm-hmm. you know, a sourdough starter loaf at the farmer's market, even here probably won't affect you as much because, you know, it's had time in the fermentation process to degrade that gluten. Um, Cause that's how, you know, bread is originally made is that bacteria, you know, helps to break down the gluten content. But instead here, in order to skip that process and speed up the rise time um, to make it fit for an industrial mixer, sometimes there'll be uh, an ingredient called vital wheat gluten that's added to the mix. And that allows you to get that elasticity without, you know, any sort of um, time and process of development. Um, So you know, I think probably the pesticides are the biggest issue, but you know, there are, there is also a higher degree of gluten in a lot of commercial baked goods. And by the way, in makeup products, chewing gum, so many things, vital wheat gluten is added to. Um, but I think, you know, kind of with the correlation to autoimmune diseases, like for sure, just like the hyper toxic slash chemical ridden environment that we live in. And Mm -hmm. it's just so scary. And like, I'm so aware of my privilege and the ability to buy organic and be able to switch my beauty products to naturals. And, you know, it's just one more reason why we all have to be vigilant if we're upset by the state of (laughs) our food systems and, you know, the amount of chemicals and number of forever chemicals that are allowed right now by the FDA, just, Mm -hmm. you know, we need to create larger policy changes to make sure that everyone's protected. Right. I mean, I just living in Europe and like seeing the difference of like what, what chemicals or toxins, you know, what have you are allowed there versus here. It's just like, why, why is it such a normal thing here that like, it's not, I don't know if we should say vetted, but or just the, the pol- there's no policy and, or protection for a yeah. lot of, you know, the products that we're using. And it's a huge problem. 
Um, I also really appreciate that you pointed out your privilege, which I have the same, you know, thing of, you know, I, I'm able to afford, you know, or organic or switching out my products or even just having access. Like there's so many, um, what are they called? Uh, food deserts, I believe. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you know, where food low, apartheids. Yeah. Yeah. Low income areas like only have access to fast food or like, no, not that many grocery stores. So that is a real, another really important part of the conversation. So, you know, if someone were having these symptoms, um, would you say like the first step is to see a holistic doctor, <laughs> most likely? Well, for Hashimoto's, you know, I mean, I was diagnosed by just my my regular childhood practitioner. Um, SIBO, by the way, also, you know, I don't want to discount like the awareness that's out there. Um, yeah. I'd say like, there are people who are who are diagnosing every day like we're not holistic. Um, I think I just get so many emails and messages from people who have been like in the weeds with it for so many years. Yeah. And usually they'll find their way to more of a specialist um, if it doesn't yeah. go away. Someone who really understands kind of like the the diverse toolkit that's available to you if, you know, just the regular um, – conventional antibiotic like doesn't do the job yeah okay got it um and so I want to kind of take a step back for a minute so you grew up I I listened to some of your stuff you grew up with a mom that was a bit more holistic is that correct yes Yes. (laughs) okay so she's all about prescription medication though oh yeah okay so probably similar to my mom then yeah she's into homeopathy but then also if she's prescribed something she will take it 100% no questions asked (laughs) okay um what was that like for you Um, Well, of course, you know, I was very jealous of the households that had, you know, the fruit by the foot and yeah, fruit leather. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) Fruit leather did not stack up to that. Um, And yeah, I don't know the Dunkaroos, um, all the things I craved. Yeah. Pizza, bagel bites. Um, (laughs) But no, it was great because I think I definitely rebelled and would go over to friends' houses and like literally just like binge. Um, But like once I got older, you know, it wasn't that I disliked anything she was serving me. I just wanted the things that were advertised on television in addition to it. And the things Um, you couldn't have. Exactly. (laughs) So like, I definitely loved quinoa and millet thanks to her, which was great. And like carob covered raisins from the health food store um, in addition to those other things. And I was so lucky because those really, you know, trickled down into my cooking. It wasn't like I had to completely overhaul my vision of what dinner could look like when I started to change my diet. And my mother's actually been like kind of dairy and gluten light for dairy free and gluten light for many, many years. Um, which is why I guess I was familiar with those kind of, you know, ancient gluten free grains. Um, but no, it's been funny, you know, seeing how my education has like kind of surpassed hers in some ways, which she always tells me. But, you know, I've always thought of her as someone who's just like really knowledgeable. I remember when I was younger, one of the reasons why she wouldn't let me have a lot of the products from the regular grocery store was because of an ingredient that I don't know that I see as much anymore, but it certainly was really big in the nineties called cottonseed oil. And this is, I haven't done a ton of my own research past, you know, my childhood, but at the time she explained it to me that explained to me that because cotton is not an actual, you know, vegetable or food source, it wasn't subjected to the same kind of regulation. So you could really spray anything you wanted on cotton. And then, you know, obviously the derivative oil was going to be, you know, subject to all of those same 
ingredients. And now I actually do know, I think cotton is the most, is the highest pesticide crop in the world. Interesting. Um, so I don't know that it's used in our food system as much. I'm sure they've found something else cheap and right. <laughs> horrible right. to replace it with by now. Right. Um, but at the time it was like, we had to look at the ingredient label on every single box of whatever mm-hmm. I wanted and every single thing had cottonseed oil in it. And so I wasn't oh. allowed to have it. Wow. <laughs> and um, you mentioned gly- 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 I hope I'm pronouncing glyphosate. Glyphosate. Okay, yes. So this is something, of course, like I've heard about it for a while. It came up even more so in my infertility journey and like right. looking into why is this not happening? Do I need to remove all toxins type thing? And I read that it's also in our water like our drinking supply and in our showers because of the is it because of the runoff runoff yeah um can you explain a bit about that yeah well I mean if you think the regulations are bad for our personal care products like the regulations for our clean water are just really abysmal I don't think there's been a single thing outlawed since like the 1970s so like dry dry cleaner like fluids and like I mean, every manner of pharmaceuticals, which are not actually processed by our municipal water filters, which is really scary. So like there's residues of drugs in our tap water. All of that can flow legally through the taps. Um, You know, I'm not sure. I guess like the lead percentage in Flint, Michigan broke a law, but like it's like the laws really don't protect from very much. Like that's like the most egregious example but there's lead flowing through all of our taps like don't be don't be um i don't know pretend or fool yourself that that our water is any different i mean i live in new york city and we have some of the best municipal water i think in the country and all of this stuff is still in it there's still pharmaceuticals there's still lead there's still all this stuff so i highly recommend if you can invest in one thing to just get you know a solid block carbon filter for your tap that was it's actually i write all about this in my water chapter of the (laughs) wellness project because i think it's something that people just don't think about enough and in general i think it's you know people worry so much about or you know the people who can afford to worry so much about you know where your produce comes from where your grocery products come from and buy organic but you know a lot of people then will cook it in like a Teflon pan and then drink what you know, eight cups of water a day that has those same pesticides like flowing through it. I think for me, like kind of my biggest learning from, you know, all of these like scary toxins that can truly drive you crazy is that it's kind of the one time changes that you know, are the easiest to accomplish both financially and just like for your mental sanity. Yes. So like for me, like a hundred dollar water filter that I changed the cartridge on one time a year, like that's a really easy one for me. And like, it's something that's going to have a huge impact because, you know, think about how much water you drink at home every single day, especially now that a lot of us are spending more right. time at home. Right. I love that you pointed that out, like the one time changes, because Um, And that being easier for your mental state, because through my infertility journey and kind of looking into and realizing how everything is toxic (laughs) nowadays, you know, like we just live in such a an overload of, you know, toxicity and chemicals around us. Like there's definitely a point where you get to feel like goodness gracious, like I'm just going to die from anything and everything. And what's the point? And like you get really overwhelmed and 
you know, I even had to come to a point where I was like, okay, like I'm going to try to do some things, but I just can't do everything. Like I can't for my mental sanity. I can't even like just even trying is like so hard and it's expensive. Again, that's another area of privilege that like, you know, if you're even able to afford it. And for those that aren't like, what do you say to them? Like, Oh, sorry. Like you're screwed. Like, no, like that, that's not okay. You know? And so I think that again, a middle ground, you know, just doing what you can, um, is a really great message. Um, so another topic that I want to briefly touch on, because I I am a personal trainer, like I would say that I am definitely more focused in like the fitness, you know, kind of space. So in regards to Hashimoto's and thyroid disorders, there's a big discussion around, like you said, weight gain or weight Mm -hmm. loss. And, um, you know, when I, again, when I was diagnosed, I started paying attention a bit more to those discussions and I do, um, really value, uh, peer reviewed, you know, articles and, um, or studies and the articles. And so I follow a few like doctors on Instagram, like that's one Mm -hmm. of the best ways these days to get like up to date, you know, information and research and kind of just tune into what they're saying. And there's one doctor I follow that specializes in kind of thyroid disorders and obesity. And he said something that really surprised me. He was talking about how, of course, there are always exceptions. There are always medical cases that are outliers. But he was saying, he's like, thyroid disorders do not make you gain weight. It's not that the diagnosis makes you gain weight. It's what that does to your body and to your appetite. So, cause I've seen so many women say, well, I have PCOS or I have Hashimoto's or I have this thyroid disorder and I just can't lose weight. And I, I thought to myself like, well, how is that? Why is that? And his answer essentially was how the, that disorder impacts your, your hunger hormones. That is what causes you to gain weight because at the end of the day, fat loss or weight loss comes down to being in a caloric deficit or a caloric surplus. But if you, if your hunger hormones are so all over the place where you're eating more, like that is what's causing you to gain weight. But even if you are, you have, you know, any of these disorders, but if you're in a caloric deficit, like you're going to lose weight, like it's a numbers game, the end. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I strongly disagree. (laughs) That's great. I want to hear it. Well, I think there are going to be so many Hashimoto's people listening out there who are like, yeah, no, I've starved myself and I've exercised Mm. all the time and like I still gained weight. And I mean, it really comes down to cortisol for a lot of people who have hormonal imbalances. I mean, I think more so than, you know, being driven to eat with the hunger hormones. It's just the way that your body is retaining weight. It's, you know, with cortisol, it's like if you're, body's being told that you're in, you know, a period of stress, you're going to want to hold on to as much energy as you can and not spend it because who knows when the, you know, back in the day when calories were scarce, you don't know when your next meal is going to come from. So, um, it's also a reason why some people who, do really intense cardio, um, can't necessarily lose weight because it's actually stressing your body out and it's causing your cortisol to spike. And again, when your cortisol spikes, it doesn't matter how many calories you're burning. Like your body is going to be programmed to hold on to weight. Um, Mm. and then again, it comes down to, you know, what kind of bacteria is in your gut. And, you know, I can't stress enough, like whether or not it's SIBO or just a larger microbiome issue, like 
pretty much the vast majority of anyone with an autoimmune disease is going to have probably some sort of underlying cause in their gut with some sort of imbalance, be it SIBO or again, just, you know, a proliferation of a certain type of bacteria that, um, you know, is out of balance or just not enough diversity, period, not enough period, or Perhaps you have the right balance, but certain bacterial species are not actually activating or working for you. I mean, it's such a it's such a delicate balance in general um, that I think that's probably where you would be better off looking rather than, you know, necessarily what's on your plate, how many calories you're burning every day in your workouts is, you know, cleaning up your gut is going to have such a huge impact and cleaning up your hormones, which really goes hand in hand because it is very much linked to your digestive organs, especially your liver. Um, mm-hmm. Just working on those will have the biggest impact on your weight. I found with a lot of women. Okay, and I love that you disagree. I love having you know the different <laughs> viewpoints, and um, because I don't, there, there's obviously no one size fits all, and there's almost nothing that's an absolute when it comes yeah. to all humans. So, um, so what would you say is the main message that you want to share with people that have Hashimoto's or SIBO, and kind of how they can live their best life with that uh, diagnosis. Yeah. So per your point before about feeling overwhelmed and, you know, there being so many things to fear, so many things to, you know, tackle in our own body to like clean up our act. I mean, I was completely overwhelmed when I entered this point where I decided to do my wellness project. That was like the whole impetus for it because I kind of swung from one side of the the pendulum when I was 22 to being totally in denial to then, you know, trying to jump on board and being just like, inundated with all these conflicting opinions and also just like so many to do's. Um, So my approach and like my philosophy is something I call healthy hedonism, which is all about balancing the things that nourish your body with the things that actually bring you joy. And sometimes that Venn diagram is going to overlap. Like, like I said, I love quinoa and greens, you know, I was lucky to be raised on them. I truly (laughs) do love them. They're smack in the middle. Um, There are other things that I found that I don't like at all. And I think that's totally fine. There are, again, there is such a laundry list of to do's. There are so many products and things available to us that I think we are all completely within our abilities to pick and choose like because no one can do all of the above all at once and yeah it's really about finding what's sustainable for you so yeah for me it's all about that middle ground between health and hedonism it was for my Hashimoto's and it certainly was you know when I started to tackle SIBO which truly you know can be really really painful for people in terms of whittling Mm -hmm. down their diet and their social life and all of that to try and you know beat the beasts. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, the name of the podcast is Your Best Life. And the main message I want to convey to that is that there's no such thing as one best life. Right. And, uh, contrary to what Instagram may, might make you want to <laughs> think. But, you know, everyone has a different uh, experience in life and different things that have brought them to living their own best life. So if you had to pick one thing that helped you live your best life, what would that be? I think it's, it's just being able to find freedom outside the four walls of my home. And, you know, that's meant very different things in the past uh, three months (laughs) than it did in the years prior. But um, like kind of, as I mentioned before, it's like 
really figuring out what I can do to set myself up for success at home so that I cannot stress and just do what I want out in the world. Um, and, you know, right now that doesn't necessarily mean like going to restaurants and eating yeah. whatever I want. But even just like for me, the mentality of freedom is very important just is just because of my personality. I'm like yeah. a little bit of a rebel and I don't like to be told <laughs> what to do. So, you know, again, just those one time changes or just, you know, kind of doing what I can when I when I do have control helps me feel less stressed about when I don't have control and can really allow me to be more present and enjoy my life in the moment, be it while traveling or just simply, you know, going out. Amazing. Beautiful. And Phoebe, can you let everyone know where they can find and follow you? Yes. So I'm at Phoebe Lapine on Instagram, just my name. Um, You can find my book, The Wellness Project, wherever books are sold. And I have lots of gluten-free recipes and more resources on SIBO on my website, which is feedmephoebe.com and also on my podcast, SIBO Made Simple. Phoebe, thank you so, so much for your time. This was incredibly insightful and informative. Um, Thank you. And I hope you're staying safe and healthy out there. You too. (laughs) Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Phoebe Lapine. Luca, what did you think? That was very interesting. Definitely. A lot of information. A lot of information, yeah. Super informative. Um, and I think she did. She does a really great job of explaining it in an easy to understand way. One thing that I thought was really interesting and I loved is her disagreement about the whole caloric deficit being the end-all be-all for fat loss. And the reason why I say I love the disagreement is just because I think that it's so important to to acknowledge that there are different kind of, uh, I don't want to say just viewpoints because of course, as I said, like actual research and studies, um, you can't dispute that, but there are a lot of times like, uh, caveats to certain things and, you know, research does change from time to time, like the studies. So, um, the doctor that I mentioned that I follow on Instagram, I really want to try to get him on the podcast. And I want to, I want to ask him about this because it is something that I see in the fitness community that they hamper on a lot, that it's like your caloric intake, end of story, you know, nothing nothing else matters, which it's like, (sighs) I I do, I, I agree to a point, you know, and I really want to talk about, well, what are those caveats? What are those scenarios where that may not be the truth and like phoebe said she completely disagrees so anyways that's just another area that i want to dive further into yeah i think Um, it's very interesting because it it probably is obviously a big part of the equation of being in a caloric deficit even if you have one of these autoimmune diseases but probably it's not you we might be missing a piece of the equation you know of course i'm sure well i'm not an expert in right we are not so yeah yeah, it would be really interesting to actually dive more into it because i think a lot of people are curious as well yeah so uh question for you did you ever try any gluten-free pasta in italy (laughs) no i haven't i actually have never tried it but i have a couple of friends that actually have this celiac disease and they have the pasta and, you know, actually they say it's, it's actually pretty good. Yeah, okay. it's actually we'll true. To... Like, you know, there is actually, there are more and more options. That's true. Like in the last, I would yeah. say five to 10 years, there've been more and more options for um, celiac disease, especially in Italy, you know, where we, pasta is such a big part of our right. uh, diet. And yeah, so now you can find a lot of kind. Yeah. And I think it's also important to point out that there's a difference between someone who has celiac disease or Hashimoto's or, 
you know, any of those conditions in someone who is just gluten intolerant. That's, it's typically when I hear someone that's like, oh, I went to Italy, I could eat all the pasta and all the gluten and I was fine. Those are typically people that are just intolerant because no matter the sourcing, no No matter how it's made, if you have celiac disease, then that's, it's not, yeah, not going to fly. So I think that's important to point out. So. Um, All right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, don't forget to let us know what you think in the Facebook group or on Instagram. And we will talk to you guys next time. And that is it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, I would love for you to share with a friend, spread the word and help us grow our tribe. Please rate and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes each week. You can also follow us on Instagram and join our Facebook group, both under the same name, Your Best Life Podcast, to keep the conversation going. You can also send me an email at yourbestlifepodcast at gmail.com and you just might be featured in a future episode. Your Best Life is a Gallery Media Group original production.